Jewish Latin Princess, episode 108, Talia Karner, author of The Third Daughter. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at JewishLatinPrincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Talia Karner. Talia is a fiction writer who gives voice to those without one in society. She creates awareness, opens people's eyes to human rights issues, and paves the way for social change. Her advocacy work has taken her to the United Nations as the first person to ever present at the UN on infanticide in China. A tireless advocate for human rights in general, Talia just published her latest novel titled The Third Daughter. Inspired by Shalom Aleichem's short story, The Man from Buenos Aires, the third daughter tells the story of a young Jewish woman and many like her at the turn of the 20th century who were lured from anti-Semitic pogroms in Russia into Buenos Aires, Argentina, with the promise of a good life only to be forced into a life of prostitution and abuse. Before turning to fiction writing full-time, Talia worked for Redbook Magazine and was the publisher of Savvy Woman Magazine. A former adjunct professor at the Long Island University of School of Management and a marketing consultant to Fortune 500 companies, she was also a volunteer counselor and lecturer for the Small Business Administration and a member of the United States Information Agency's Missions to Russia. She participated in the 1995 International Women's Conference in Beijing, where she sat on economic panels and helped develop political campaigns for Indian and African women. Today, Talia talks to us about the social problem that she tackled in her latest book, The Third Daughter, and one which is far from extinct today, sex trafficking. What is being done about this issue? What needs to be done? And who are the players taking positive action to combat the social disease? How did Talia end up becoming such a fierce human rights advocate? What is her next project? Her love of Israel, family life, JLP fill in the blanks, and more. Here's the fascinating Talia Karner. Talia Karner, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's such a pleasure. And first of all, congratulations on your latest book, The Third Daughter, which just came out last week, September 3rd. Um, Very, very exciting. Not your first work, but definitely a very important one. So congratulations. Thank you. I want us to get to this latest work, um, but I think it's important. Well, first, I want to brag about you a little bit to give um, listeners a little bit of background. I, I think... You are a unique fiction writer in the sense that you use the pen to tackle important issues that often I feel get placed under the radar and you bring them to the forefront and you get the attention of policymakers, the media, the public. 
But I find it fascinating that your career didn't begin perhaps with wanting to be a published author, which when you'll correct me later if I'm wrong, which you are many times over, but I understand that your background is in business and economics, and then this evolved into writing about issues of human rights, women's rights, and more. So you've become a writer who gives a voice to those you feel don't have a voice in society, or their voice is too soft and not being listened to. So I I think this is just fascinating. And what I'd love for you to do is to begin by giving listeners some context and background to your work and the development of your voice. So why don't you why don't we start with the origins of Talia the author or rather the businesswoman turned author who is not afraid to tackle controversial issues and, you know, become a global activist. Can you trace those steps back for us? Connect the dots for us a little bit. How did it happen, Talia? It's uh, hard to say when it exactly started. Mm -hmm. I know when I started to write fiction, Mm -hmm. and that was November 3rd, 1993 at 2.48 p.m. Oh, my goodness. Exactly that can be. But the seeds of every one of my stories had been implanted years before. They fermented, they grew in me until one day each of those stories in its own turn Mm -hmm. just compelled me to sit down and write that particular novel. Sometimes, as in the case of uh, The Third Daughter, the area, the field of, uh, it's not just sex trafficking, but sexual subjugation of women or the use of women as in a tool of war, mm-hmm. being rape. That had been in my mind, on my mind for a while. In Back in 1995, I was the at the International Women's Conference in Beijing, I had at that time, as a businesswoman, a person, or somebody who studied economics, I taught as a volunteer counselor for the Small Business Administration Women's Programs. I taught uh, entrepreneurial skills. I taught marketing planning, business forecasting, etc. I believed that economic independence was the first of all independences that we women could could and should claim for ourselves mm-hmm. i watched as women once they became financially independent were able to claim their independence out of a bad abusive marriage for example correct uh, women in africa once they got began to develop little micro businesses they use that money to open schools for girls right there in the middle of those jungles. Their husbands began to respect them. Their in-laws stopped beating them. Hmm. Their sons had new visions of what women were about. And their daughters finally could dream of a different life than a life of being subjugated. So I believed in that very strongly, and that's why I gave seminars, and I was volunteering to all kinds of economic panels and entrepreneurial skills development. 
And that's what I was doing in Beijing in 1995 when I was introduced to topics such as clitoridectomy Mm -hmm. of women where above about 80 million women in Africa and the Middle East have had the what they call the genital mutilation and this is not a tiny little neck this is a an abhorring practice of incising the entire Libya area it is I was introduced to the burning of the brides in the Indian society over uh, families disputing over the dowry years after the woman has already been married and had children and the families continue to fight until these women suddenly miraculously caught fire in their own kitchen and we uh, there was of course infanticide in china which at the time was just coming out to to be for the western world to be aware of and the chinese government said to the world what do you want from us you told us to control population so Mm. how else do you expect us to do it Mm -hmm. if not to kill our babies and they didn't even see anything wrong in it. So I was exposed to that and I realized that the first freedom was not just economic freedom, but freedom from violence. Mm-hmm. I was taking that for, for granted. And by that time, I'd started to write, as I mentioned, 1993, November 3rd, where I had started to write a book that at that time didn't get published. This was three weeks after my return from Russia where I taught business skills to women in Russia and I uh, was caught in the uprising of the Russian parliament against Boris Yeltsin. So I started to write a novel about it. That never got published but 20 years later I used the material to give all of that background to a protagonist in another novel that did get published four Mm -hmm. years ago by the name of Hotel Moscow. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in Beijing teaching women entrepreneurial skills when I discovered all of this violence against women. Mm -hmm. And it was one, all of it, all the stories I'm just telling you, all of these forms of violence had not been in my consciousness because we don't see them. Right, right. So, and I was not personally exposed to it, but I was exposed to some of it, I'm sorry. I had had a custody battle in in Long Island, New York, uh, and uh, quite a few years prior, and I experienced firsthand the callousness and pompousness of a judge who was just a a horrible human being. And I can say that years years later when I... uh, actually published Puppet Child, I dedicated it to him and how he taught me about the pompousness and callousness of judges. So yes, I experienced that, but now I, I learned in Beijing about those that what I, had happened to me meeting that kind of a judge, who by the way, put himself as my um, kind of a guardian until my children grew up and were emancipated. Hmm. So that when my my daughter wanted her ears pierced, the judge had scolded me that I performed a medical procedure <laughs> on the child without the father's <laughs> consent. Okay, so I had to uh, to report to this judge 
for the rest of the years that my children were growing up. And actually, my husband, who who I met soon after, my current husband, uh, was an attorney in that county, and that judge forbade all his his uh, office, my husband's office, the third in the county, to ever appear in front of him. Oh, wow. He was so intent on my case. He was so obsessed with me. So uh, it was a completely insane case. I thought it was my, it happened to me only. And in Beijing, when I listened to a professor from the University of Chicago, actually, talking about those judges, I realized that this was a universal case. Mine only gave me the first taste. Mm -hmm. So I went home, I put an 800 number on the internet, asked uh, women, usually parents, but I got calls from women to call me, and they started telling me the stories, and that's what became my novel, my first published novel, by the name of Puppet Child. Mm -hmm. And this novel set into motion what later on became the Protective Parent Reform Act, correct? Exactly, exactly. Once the once the novel came out, I had things sometimes happen, think good things happen to me. In this particular case, I was at a fundraiser for our congressman. I was just in the audience, but apparently he knew me, but he didn't know I had a novel just published and he came over and he said what's this book about and I mentioned to him he said to me come to my office make an appointment and let's talk about it Mm -hmm. so there were I had a three-week gap between that fundraiser to the time my appointment came up I so I contacted many activists to ask them what Shall I? What is this that we require on the federal level? I'd never dealt with federal government. I had no idea how. What's the difference between laws and state laws and federal laws and acts? And I, I had just didn't know. So I learned quite a lot in those three weeks. And when I came to his office. This is this comes from my business background. I presented not just a problem, but a problem and a suggested solution. Solutions, yes. So that's a lot better rather than come and say, "Look, here's a problem, uh-huh. we'll solve it." But I came and I say, "This is what we need to see on the federal level happen." Amazing. Richard Ducardi who was living at that time in uh, New Orleans and after the big hurricane moved to Pittsburgh. But Richard Ducotti, I asked him to write. He had tried those high conflict custody cases Mm -hmm. in 40 states. So I asked him to write the law and I added all kind of clauses based upon what the various activists told me so we ended up with 11 clause uh, uh, yeah clause to that uh, to that law and I presented it then to my congressman and the rest of the story it eventually father's group got wind of it the day before the congressman was going to announce it and uh, under pressure he withdrew that announcement and Hmm. instead what we did uh, his office suggested that I get the law passed in many states and once we have enough states on our side then we can go back and try to pass it to uh, as a federal act so in the meanwhile 
in those first early years, and I'm talking about the year 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. the law became uh, ran, it became it became the law in about four states two state state uh, legislators state um, uh, congressmen mm -hmm. passed uh, governor no I, I guess it was legislatures went on on this um, ran on the platform of the protective act the Pro protective parent, parent. Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, one in Maryland and one in Delaware. They happened to be neighboring states, but had nothing to do with each other. And uh, the law has still passed, uh, clauses from it passed in many states. Even when New York State had a reform to the divorce law, and I read it, and all of a sudden I recognized I recognized one of the parts and I looked at it and it was word by word taken out of my law, which is what I had asked activists to do. And that is see, get a consensus on whatever it is that you can and use this particular blueprint. And until now, this law appears on this act, Protective Parent Reform Act appears on my website. It has a, a PowerPoint program that they can use to give presentations mm -hmm. and, and it's being still being used. I'm not active on it anymore. So yep. all of this begs the question. I mean, it's not even it's not just this. It's also I know that you you made the first presentation in you and in, in the history of the United Nations about infanticide in China um, at the United States, Na uh, the United Nations. Uh, you've done so much in terms of advocacy. You I think you commissioned independent research um, that the results of that research ended up challenging the U.S. government's definition of entrepreneurship and female participation in the marketplace way back, you know, very early on. So it begs the question, um, as a Jewish woman, there is a part of me that, you know, immediately sees, you know, we... I, I, we as a nation are charged by God to take care of the slave, the widow, the orphan. We, we, this is something, you know, being in defense of victims that comes from our Jewish heritage. In fact, our sages teaches that one of the reasons we were slaves ourselves and we remember our slavery every single day in our prayers is to ingrain in us this empathy and this sense of responsibility for the minority and for those who are being exploited. But I have the sense that while all this might be true, and while you did allude to, you know, the custody battle, um, that perhaps in your case, it goes a little bit deeper, that this character trait in you must be even more personal. Is there, other than this ex negative experience with custody of your children, can you share with us perhaps a punctual part of your family background or of your upbringing that you think has made you into this fierce activist? It's interesting. I had... Um, a very good, loving father and mother. My mother was quite a woman, a strong personality who who took no prisoners. And uh, I would say that I probably had it always in me because an interviewer asked me once what was my favorite book as a child. And you know how children go back to the same book again and again. And I, mine was... A, uh, translated from French, 
by Victor Malot called, in English it's called Nobody's Girl, mm -hmm. in uh, French is En Famille, and in Hebrew is Bamishpacha. Mm -hmm. And I read it again and again, and it was about a young uh, orphan in France, probably during the Industrial Revolution, or no, maybe in the, in, in, you know, as a child, I didn't know what time it was, but I must say that she was trying to help girls who were working in the factories and living in horrific conditions mm -hmm. while she herself settled, found a hunter's cottage in the woods and would not sleep in that dormitory where she couldn't breathe. And she was living in a forest by herself and going to work every day with them. And you, then it turns out that because she spoke, she knew English from her English-speaking mother, her mother died, she was an orphan, this girl. Then uh, the owner of the factory invited, asked her to help him with his uh, correspondence. And that was her chance to get to teach him and show him what he could do for these uh, poor women, girls who worked for him. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading this book so many times. And I guess this is why, for me, she was a role model. I already had that in me at the age of 10, 11, 12. For example, I never understood the book Little Women. Mm. For me, <laughs> they were silly, idiotic, yes. <laughs> boring. I, I, you know, with all of those ribbons and talking about marriage and like, it was like, I, I could not imagine a more boring existence than those two little, this book, Little Women. So, for me, a girl who did something for others was a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, it, I would say that that's probably where I come from. I, as you know from my accent and my background, I was born and raised in Israel. Right. was educated there. I'm very much, even though I live in New York for all my adult life, I'm uh, very committed to my people and uh, to their well-being. I would like to say that my act I don't do much activism for Israel. I am a great supporter of things that have to do with Israel, but not necessarily by in actions of the sort that I'm taking now, for example, with the sexual um, trafficking, where I actually can educate audiences about things that I know and I learn. I feel that when it comes to Israel, there are a lot of many experts who can speak about it a lot better than I do. But now that I've learned the subject of sex trafficking and I have a chance to educate audiences when I'm invited to keynote lunches and dinners and mm -hmm. various various organizations invite me and I uh, you can use that platform use the book as the a kind of initial introduction to understanding that the sex workers do not do that because they choose to but because they are victims because they are kidnapped because they are forced into it regardless of how they behave and act and speak and dress that they have been victims and in the United States for example do you know what's the of, of uh, US trafficker tra trafficked people 
and I say I should say usually girls and women, but there definitely are boys and transgender, and they are subject to that. So, what is the age of entry into the sex trafficking? I have no idea, but I would, if I had to guess, do I have to guess? <laughs> if I had yes. to guess, I would say early teens. Yeah. It's 12 to 14 years old, which means it's done. A lot of it is in the schools. Mm -hmm. And today now a lot of it is through the Internet. And what happens is those, the traffickers target vulnerable children who are maybe socially isolated, who may be uh, in a family in crisis, a parent leaves, dies or leaves, maybe a, a, a sibling is extremely ill and it takes all the family's attention away. There are a variety of reasons why families are in crisis. And those children are the most vulnerable. Vulnerable, right. Of course, you're talking poverty and you're talking all kinds of other situations that uh, they are. the parents can be on drugs. They, they, they are a lot of situations there are children who've been sexually molested their, their entire life right there are homelessness and especially the foster care system are the worst in terms of introducing our young people our children to trafficking now, Talia, I, 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 want to, I want to continue on, the, on this note and the note of the new book, but hearing you speak, I do have to highlight for listeners that something that is just comes out very evident from listening to you, and it's this constant message that if a certain knowledge came to my attention, um, you know, you mentioned what you learned when you were in Beijing back then, now all what you've learned now, it, it seems like every step of the way, you've come to the realization that there is some ashkaha, there is some providence in the fact that I had, this is not happening to me personally. However, for whatever reason, I've come to have this knowledge and it's now for me to do something about it. And I just think it's commendable and it's worth highlighting this aspect because that is true. That is, that is, that is the Jewish idea that if something is coming to your way, it's, it's for a reason. And your the re, the Jewish response is what could I be doing about it? What am I going to do about it with my resources? In your case, it's your voice, it's your pen, it's, you know, all everything that you've been given at your disposal. So I just wanted to highlight that for listeners. And then I wanted to go back to another point that you made before, because when you were talking about the book that shaped your, um, your life as a child, um, I was, you mentioned that girl and you saw in her, you know, the, her role as somebody who did something, who was an agent of change. And I'm curious to know, is it something that you also saw perhaps in the women in your family as you were growing up in Israel? My, the women in my family were always stupendous in their abilities, in their talents, in the things that they did for themselves mostly and for the families, but they were never benevolent towards the world. Mm -hmm. They were too engaged with, I don't want to say survival, it was some work, but they were firsts. For example, well, uh, I can't. My grandmother, who was my inspiration for my novel *Jerusalem Maiden*, 
was not the first. She should have. The Jer Jerusalem Maiden is a novel that is the alternate life. What if? What if she had rebelled? What if she had bolted and sought the right life for herself, which would have been in the life of an artist? Because she was a fantastic artist who was suppressed and put all of her artistic genius into crocheting and knitting. She did fabulous works, but I always imagined her as uh, an internationally known artist, mm. which, by the way, my mother eventually became. Mm. But my so my grandmother did not do that. My grandmother, who grew up in Jerusalem, in a modern family, modern Orthodox in Jerusalem, then is not what we know is modern Orthodox in the United States. Mm -hmm. It was very very conformist. The they they had no vision of women doing anything else other than being homemakers, even though. Jewish women whose husbands were yeshiva buchers, meaning they were studying in the yeshiva, the Talmudic studies their entire life. The women may have popped 10 to 15 children, but they all worked right, in of small course. industries. But they, didn't, they, did, they were the breadwinners, yet nevertheless, they did not see them, them, themselves as important and never went into anything big other than survival and a little and a little income they could do for their families uh, my grandmother came from a well-to-do family in that on that environment her father was a banker and uh, but she had no vision of life other than marrying a man from Jaffa which was my grandfather she moved to Jaffa and uh, she continued the somewhat of a religious life but cheated, always cheated, at least the years that I knew her, because she must have had a kosher kitchen, and I was there a lot, but I don't remember ever being told not to mix my plates, or I, it, it, towards the end of my grandmother's life, she used to play cards on Friday, and she would take the taxi home and let it drop her off a block or two away from her neighborhood so she could walk back home not hmm. nobody would see her in a taxi so uh, that was my grandmother and uh, Jerusalem maiden is her alternate life but hmm. her oldest daughter who just passed away at the age of 98 rebelled in a different way she ran away from home at the age of 18 to do what what can you guess a girl runs away from home you will not guess. She ran away from home to Beirut University to study law. Hmm. Okay? <laughs> of, of all places. Beirut, in, during, under the British mandate, oh. was where you studied law. Uh -huh. Where, you know, the British had the... Because the law was the British law, and that's where they studied. So, and interestingly enough, she was a classmate of my father who <laughs> was uh, they just happened to be classmates so he he had seen my mother as a child but uh, it was years later that they met but um, so that's what she did the second door there was a boy girl boy girl boy girl boy girl so on but my mother was a number three but the second daughter she started a life as a very conformist type of a person but eventually and when she wanted to paint as a child the school principal locked her up 
in her office because as a punishment for not wanting to play. <laughs> and uh, so my mother didn't start painting until she was 42. And that's when she burst as a fantastic artist that her mother never was. Then uh, there were another girl, and my, my Aunt Ruth, who still lives in New York, still alive, she she ran away from home. No, but to... <laughs> To and she went, came to the States and went to Columbia University, got her master's in finances and became the first woman broker, stockbroker at Dean Witter Reynolds. Oh, my major, goodness. A major, so, but, so I'm saying my, the mothers, the, the women in my family have been always formidable, but not as an activist for the rest of the world. They did for themselves very big things. And I would say that I can't find in myself what's my motivation other than deep compassion mm -hmm. towards those who need my compassion and the opportunity that I may have to help them. But right. you say, for example, my mother was a Haganah commander. Mm -hmm. And when she was, uh, she, she was in the first first class of Wingate Institute for gym teachers. So in at that time, it was still in Tel Aviv. They did not have the buildings and, and the whole campus that they now have just south of Netanya. But at, uh, at the time that they were they were teaching her to be a, a gym teacher. Mm -hmm. was, she was also training as a Haganah commander. And uh, I, I, for her, it looked normal. And for me, g growing up, knowing or hearing those stories, I thought that was normal. I mean, wasn't every mother a Haganah commander? <laughs> so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see it as so unusual. Of course, I, I can see the difference today. That is funny. So, so you know what? You, you made me think of something, and I've talked about this on the show before, because you've, we've men you've mentioned several times about women's financial independence and how important this is and obviously the, this business that you were working on for nine years also helped women you know obviously on a business sense and financially etc so I'm curious to know because from you personally because I find even though you found the experience of if women in underdeveloped countries to be um, one where the financial independence was the crucial piece to get them out of negative situations, there is still a sad reality even today in 2019 amongst even highly educated women like you and I having this conversation, who sadly still bury their heads under the sand and hand over their financial lives to their husbands or to, you know, just a male broker or, you know, and, and again, the issue of financial independence, I think it's a very relevant conversation, even to modern women today in 2019 in America and of financial literacy. So my question to you is, with that context is about yourself, how would you rate yourself on your own, you know, financial management, if, if we were say from one to 10, would you think, you know, I've done pretty well, I could be improving? How would you rate yourself in that regard? It's, it's an interesting question, because it, in doing my married life, 
my husband and I went through various transitions from the time that I was working and earning a living until the day I decided to switch to writing fiction full time and I said to him I would like to be a kept woman and he said okay honey so we had to change our view of our finances until then I was more actively involved also because I was more interested in investments and in our financial future Mm -hmm. we still had four kids to put through college plus his nephew because his brother died young and uh, we had those considerations so you were always very involved I was until the time that it became very convenient for me to stop earning to let him earn and then probably unrelated or our kids finished college I was involved in what I was doing and he was retiring from his law practice but you could have still remained involved you you said you're saying that you're suggesting that you stopped being involved even though you weren't making perhaps you weren't the breadwinner I I, a lot I was making before I used to go to the presentations by the uh, there was a company managing our much much of our investments i used to go to the presentations and would come home and say let's do this or that after that i changed and i guess it was a convenient situation for both of us where he had more time and he started to develop more interest in his second career mm-hmm. after retirement in <clears throat> in financial management, which was something he had not been, he was involved in a small way, but not in a big way. He became a fund manager and so on. So now all of a sudden that's his profession and I mm-hmm. find it very comfortable for me not to deal with it and just to let him manage. And he gives me, he reports to me, he, we once a year we sit down and I do a spreadsheet of everything where everything is and who's in charge and what's the name of the contact person in case something happens to to me or him you know so that we will have everything written down so everything I know everything but I do I no longer so you're in the loop (coughs) I'm in the loop definitely Mm -hmm. but I let him manage the day-to-day I'm Mm -hmm. so happy not to do it Uh, (laughs) so I can say I would say that I have not lived all of my in reality all of my uh, kind of theory of women's independence only because it became comfortable for me not to do so we were just discussing that at one point when I left Savvy Woman magazine Mm-hmm. To start this company I was mentioning that was uh, not ended up being not for profit. When I I was offered at that time to go into commercial real estate, I, I was really pitched very very hard by somebody who knew me and thought I, w- I was going to be terrific. And had I had the financial obligation to my family, if I were still a divorced woman with two children to fa- to to raise and take care of college and so on, I would probably had would have done it and I would have done very, very well. I would not have pursued the other track that I took and that is to start the company I mentioned to you. So 
it's sometimes I've had the luxury of choosing the route I wanted to take in mm-hmm. my career that may not be the most financially profitable to me or not at all. Right. But instead to to be generous towards others. Yeah. No, I understand. So that's a luxury. And For sure. I, that is the reason that I also feel very lucky. Right. But those are were conscious choices. It's not the same as just ignoring or burying your head in the sand. Oh, yeah, so. it's not right. right. It's not like my father, my, my husband says, you know, like a father would to a, to a three year old child, you don't need to know any of that. Of and course, don't don't bother your pretty head with this. No, no, no. <laughs> so so back to the new novel, um, the third daughter and to the issue of human trafficking, you were mentioning, uh, you were kind of laying the the landscape for listeners of what's going on, what's the reality. So now I want to ask you, what is being done about some of these issues that you mentioned before? um, And who are the major players who are actually taking action, if there are any? Yeah, the subject of sex trafficking is very complex. And I will try to break it down for the listeners in just uh, to uh, some sound bites. So first of all, there is the imported, the traffickers, two thirds of sex trafficking into the United States. I mean, it's for foreigners and one third is homegrown. Second, there is trafficking of labor versus trafficking for sex which is not necessarily the same. There is probably quite a lot of uh, overlapping, but there is slavery in a form of labor trafficking that comes in the United States. And then, of course, all over the globe. Mm-hmm. And for my purpose, I just cannot handle all labor trafficking, all indentured trafficking, which is another one that's when people sell themselves to uh, maybe the family gets money and they sell sell themselves as, as slave laborers and sex trafficking all over the globe it's just too big and but within within the sex trafficking there is the child bride marriages that is sex trafficking there's no other way to say other than it's a socially sanctioned by family the married marrying of girls and raping them there's, there's no other way to, to describe that. So trafficking is has many aspects to it. Of course, the use of trafficking of sex as a tool of war to break a nation's spirit, to break a family, and to break every... The whole society is now known. We see that a lot in Africa. We see it in Southeast Asia. We see it in a variety of places. I try to stay on the United States only because I'm one person and I right. can only talk about one subject at a time. I just wanted to give the context. But I uh, mentioned child bride and there's a huge number of girls in the United States who are being sent back to her, their parents' home countries, such as Afghan and, Af- and, and Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, as child brides of 14, 15, before the girls can 
can get the education and to get the the kind of courage to say no and to object. So we do have that pockets of 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 society that continues to do it within the United States. Hmm. So what's being done about some so, about this? Yeah, and also one. I'm sorry. One more thing mm-hmm. is that a law in the United States consider trafficking any under 18 year olds who with a third party gets financial benefit out of it. Mm-hmm. So if it's a, a parent who allows the landlord to abuse the child because they this way they don't have to pay rent, rent. that's trafficking of their child. Okay, so it comes in a variety of ways. But that is any any person under the age of 18 has no consent cannot be a consent even for a third party to benefit. So that is, first of all, understanding. Now, when it comes to traffickers, I mentioned before that they target children mainly. It can be a girl who is maybe 15, 16 years old, and she now has an older boyfriend who showers her with gifts, who makes her feel good. She's otherwise had been unpopular in school, socially isolated, and now all of a sudden she has good clothes and she has a great uh, smartphone and she goes out to all kind of parties with him and at one point he asks her to do him a favor he lost money and cards and if she can just have sex with this guy and just pay his debt he videos her and then the next day he says if you don't have sex with another one of my friends I'm going to put it on the internet and your entire school is going to see it and from that point on she's now enslaved to him mm-hmm. so there are various ways okay now the, for, that brings us that the most important education can start in the schools warning those kids about it and there's an organization in California called protectnow.org that has established fantastic programs going from fourth grade all the way through high schools. And it involves the school boards, the teachers, the parents, the, and of course the students themselves towards being careful about themselves or if they watch and they see something in their midst, another student that they suspect, then to treat it with not judgmental way, but they have a specific protocols as to how to handle. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go to the bigger way is the airline industry and the hotel industry, which we call the hospitality industry. The airlines are the first line of defense of all those who are being who come from abroad. Right, and. Airlines like Delta, for example, has trained about 60,000 employees on the air and on the ground because, yes, it's the flight attendants who watch Mm -hmm. over many hours if it's usually a girl who comes who is maybe drugged or maybe too happy Mm -hmm. or but she's maybe in in the company of uh, a well-heeled man who something something doesn't look right. right. Maybe he doesn't let her go to the bathroom by herself, and he stands outside the, the bathroom watching so she doesn't talk to anybody. You know, there's a variety of ways for the flight attendants to watch that. And again, there's a protocol: what to do, how to handle the situation, and on the ground. 
the porters may notice mm-hmm. somebody who comes from overseas without any luggage or a variety of things. So they're all being trained. As I mentioned, Delta Airlines, there are other airlines coming into this. The hospitality, Marriott and, and Sheraton hotels, for example, have developed programs right at the reception desk to recognize if some something, those who check in, maybe something is off. Hmm. They may let the manager of the shift know. The manager then calls the local precinct where a plain cloth officer comes in. Not They don't show up. The police doesn't show up in the lobby with all of these lights and big scenes. No, no hotel likes that. But in a very quiet per- way, a, cl- uh, way, a plain cloth cop will come in, will separate the, usually it's a man or, and, and, a, and a teenager, ask some very poignant questions and find out what's going on. The chambermaids are being trained to watch for frequent requests of towels and bed linens change during the or um, if there's a traffic of men coming in. Mm-hmm. There are signs for guests to notice if something unusual is happening in on their floor. So that that is a very important part. And Marriott has done, taken it really to a wonderful place. And that is after those uh, trafficked women have been rehabilitated. And it's very, very tenuous and, and difficult process for everybody, the psychological trauma, the social works, the employment, all of that, then then uh, after uh, Marriott Hotel gives them training and gives them jobs. Wow. So that's so that's very important. On the I mentioned the schools, I mentioned they are uh, an organization called Best business ending sex trafficking, and that is as the word <laughs> the name businesses. It can be a very small company of under 10 employees, or can be a gigantic with 50,000 employees. The idea is that they can put rules in place in terms of the behavior on the job. And hmm. let me take you to this very interesting finding. Do you know when is the Peak time for purchasing sexual services uh, during the day. What time of the day or night is the peak time for purchasing sexual services? I I have no idea. I didn't even want to think about the fact that that's such a thing happens. But yes, tell us. (laughs) And I'm not talking porno, which is which is kind of uh, passive in a way, but actually purchasing the services is 2 p.m. Oh, my goodness. That means it's in the middle the time- of the workday. Exactly. It's on a workday and it's on a work computer. Mm-hmm. So any company p- can put regulations in place as saying you are not allowed to use the company time or properties, be it the computers, be it the trucks, facilities, buildings, offices, when you are on conferences for three days, that's company time, Mm -hmm. you are not allowed to purchase sex. And with that, the idea is that purchasing sex is purchasing from 
people from women obviously usually that are subjugated that they are not selling out of their own free will that those are victims and the company will not participate in that nor would I allow its employees to do that what I found very interesting from best this organization is that and by the way they would have the wording for HR on their website best.org I guess I need to look at the name exactly but it's businesses ending sex trafficking mm -hmm. they have the wording for any company to just adopt they don't have to hire lawyers and put it in place what's interesting is that the unions are very much on the side of the employers in this end so oh. if an employee breaks these regulations and gets fired the employer does not have to go into a fight with, with the a union, union which cool. is usually very discouraging to a lot of employers they use a lot of you know they, they're very careful not to get into that very long entanglements but the well, union that's something positive <laughs> absolutely so that's you asked me who's doing what I'm giving you some examples of different projects that are uh, happening in these the um, sports arena the Super Bowl and all of those major projects my major sports events are a huge attraction a huge spike in sexual demand demands for sexual services and therefore you have you have pimps flying in with their merchandise to wow. satisfy the demand now hotels are on on call for that they are on alert for that hmm. now the actual players of some of those sports events at half time they would post their public announcement message against purchasing sex so that you have it not just coming from law enforcement or from social services or from people like me it comes from their own heroes yeah and the influencers yes T and and they has been I think uh, somewhat of a uh, somewhat slight change I believe in in that behavior it's still a lot there's a lot to go I will try to sum it up with, with the following thinking that more and more as a person with the background in economics I look at this whole picture and that is if you look at the so there's a supply and demand right and then they are the procurers of the supplies right mm -hmm. so in that whole paradigm you have the supply will always be high because all around the globe the strife and pain and poverty and war mm -hmm. create enormous amount of humans who would take the risks and the chances just for a better life right that this balance of power yes and coming to America will always be a dream mm -hmm. that they would like to, they would take the risk the suppliers that's those traffickers as long as the chance for huge profit is so high right. they would take the risk unless the punishment is as high as what they stand to benefit we cannot discourage them enough 
But what is the punishment? Let me finish. Uh-huh. Oh, it's it's fines and it's some some depending on the on, on the situation. There's some incar- incarceration and there's fines, but it's usually not as big as I'm saying it. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein that got ten years ago got uh, slapped on the wrist almost for for trafficking women from from being a and actually a pedophile and we know that the recidivism rate of pedophilia is huge it's the right. highest of all crimes but let me finish the paradigm of the supply and demand because the demand side it's those men who purchase sex mm-hmm. are the most vulnerable to exposure no man wants his name to be publicized on the internet as as the, the men who were caught last night right soliciting sex or in a brothel or wherever is the case or find, be found being fired from your company for purchasing sex for maybe the service will be rendered la- later but they make the arrangements in on company time and then he will have to explain it to his family and others and maybe another em- potential employer they are very vulnerable yet we have not dealt enough with the Johns these are the ones that we can discourage first of all educate them mm-hmm. when they understand that the these women that they are purchasing regardless of how these women present themselves they are victims of a lifelong suffering of sexual abuse and low self-esteem and there's somebody is there who's forcing them to behave this way because he holds something on them maybe is they are on drugs whatever but once these men first of all are being faced with the understanding that they are dealing with victims that in by the way in Sweden they consider it because it's a victim that means that the man is a rapist hmm. so these men once they start seeing that side of it so it comes through education first of all and then the exposure the the risks that they take now yes there's a lot of lonely men and i i myself talk i talk to some of these men and they try to convince me that i don't know what i'm talking about that these women <laughs> enjoy the lifestyle and they're having and and actually there's an organization of women sex workers who con- who are independent and they Also I I talked to them a, a woman tells me that she's married she had children go to school and instead of working 9 to 5 in a factory she sees two clients a day during the school oh the the time her kids are in school and in an hour and a half to two hours of work a day she makes more than she would have made anywhere and why am I fighting her right to do that so there is a there is a, a a group of independent sex workers which is hard to diffute their arguments there are social workers and psychologists who says that in order to even do that these women have to disengage themselves from their body and these are psychological impairment there mm-hmm. but you know what we are all somewhat psychological impairment <laughs> one thing or another so i cannot hold this just this one thing against these women but the vast vast majority 99% are victims and uh, again once we explain that and we can show that 
the demand side is the one that we can deal with by discouraging it by uh, exposure then we can lower the entire business of sex trafficking mm-hmm. so you're saying uh, working from the demand side we can change this business model we can destroy it wow Talia this is wow let's let's shift gears to something a little bit more refreshing um, we're, ra- we're really low <laughs> on time huh? yeah um, I'm curious to do before we wrap it up aside from obviously your healthy obsession with human rights, what other Jewish values or observances you feel are most present in your life or you live by, whether because you learned these from your parents' home or because you adopted them later on as an adult, raising your children or whatever? Is there anything that really is very much treasured to you? I would say that once I came to the States, my being an Israeli and Jewish became a lot more obvious to me than Mm -hmm. it had been growing up when it was a natural thing. In my marriage, my husband is a leader, a major leader in the Jewish world. Until a year and a half ago, he was the president of Maccabi USA, Mm -hmm. that is the Maccabi Games in Israel every four years and in other countries in the four years in between. Plus a lot, a lot of more uh, additional programs. There are those are Zionist programs centered around yes, Jewish identity and pride is Maccabi. Right. right. But the centrality of Israel is extremely important to me. There you go. So is so is my the history of my people, mm-hmm. past, present, and their future are extremely important to me. So it's something I feel, it's something I work on, and Beautiful. probably the book I'll be writing next, I've already researched great parts of it, will deal with this sense of strong sense of Zionism mm-hmm. and the importance of the state of Israel to our existence. But Meaning it's a subject, I've already researched some one particular idea, I just will not have a few years before I write this novel. But um, I would say that because I'm not observant, I don't have in me particular practices that I can point out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other than it's my identity. Right, I, right. But woman... But- I'm a woman, I'm Jewish, and I'm a Zionist. Beautiful. So and you've imparted would, that to your children, I'm sure. I'm sure they feel yes, that or, love and pride for um, the state of Israel and our, you know, our heritage and our claim to that land and our love for that land. Yes, I must say that all our four children married Jewish, so we take a great pride in that. Mm-hmm. And our grandchildren are being educated in Hebrew schools and with with the Hebrew with the kind of Jewish identity more or less. I meaning it's there, but sometimes it doesn't stay power past the bar mitzvah, but mitzvah bar mitzvah. Sometimes it's strengthened. I do have already grandchildren who are past the bar mitzvah, but mitzvah bar mitzvah years, so that I can see, and I have very little influence beyond taking them on trips to Israel. We did family trips uh, at least three times in different age groups. We we took the whole family so that they would also get that sense beyond what 
it's not Hebrew school. It's not the fact that some of us in the family speak Hebrew, others don't. But it's um, it's the identity. And interestingly enough, I, I would say the most Jewish of all of us in that respect and the way she raises her children is my daughter-in-law who married our son. So I would say that, and that was not my own influence. I can't <laughs> claim that that was the, the and, and our son may have married another woman who will be as fabulous as, as she is, but we would not have had as much of a sense of Judaism and, and uh commitment to the state of Israel as, as my daughter-in-law. Uh, so it really has to do with uh, with the sense that I, we gave them. I must say that when I met my last, my youngest son-in-law, I said to him, your name is music to my ears. What's his name? So he looked at me and says, Barry? I said, no, Goldberg. <laughs> So I was so happy when my daughter brought me a Goldberg. And <laughs> <laughs> all right, Talia, you've been great. I'm going to wrap it up with something I do with all my guests and uh, just have fun with this, even if they get a little spiritual. This is the part of the show where I give you an open-ended sentence and you answer it with the first thing that comes to mind. All right, you ready? Yes. I'm Talia Kardner, and I feel most spiritual when? I feel more spiritual when I wake up in the morning and I find that I have a whole day ahead of me hmm. to do so many things that are positive, that are enriching, that are just great for me, for my family, for the world. I would say that those are my greatest moments where I, you know, the days ahead of me and I can do so much with it. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful answer. And the truth is, it just, it just rings so true to the first thing that we utter in the morning is Modeani, where we express gratitude for being given our soul back to us to do something productive in the world and for God having faith. That's what we say when we say Modeani. We, we, we say you have such faithfulness in me. And that's so empowering. Like you said, just knowing that we have an entire day ahead of us to be agents of change. So I love that answer. My favorite mitzvah or one that I connect with the most is... I think it might have to do with Israel, but go for it. I would say tikkun olam. <laughs> there no you go. Question. <laughs> but also peah. You know what I mean by peah? Peah is the corner of the field yes. that we're supposed to leave for, the, for poor. the poor to come and pick up not the leftovers of the field, Correct. but just a part of the field that we just don't touch for them to pick the best. Mm -hmm. But the most important part of it is that they can come in the uh, under the cover of the night anonymously and take what they want and what they need so that charity is being done anonymously mm -hmm. is the charity that is most it protects the, the most dignity by me Yes. Is, is the one that they are. You give from the best, but you do it in a humble way, mm -hmm. not in a way that doesn't humble the receiver, doesn't take the dignity of the receiver. Exactly, exactly, which is the highest level of giving when you don't know who you're giving to, they don't know who they're taking to, and everything is anonymous. So 
to protect the dignity of the individual. Very beautiful. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is the Hanukkah candles. Ah, oh, how nice! I know it's just oh, so and beautiful. The songs and the songs. You know, I, I mentioned how secular I am, and uh, many, quite a few. When I still had my business, it was at the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. and it was a Hanukkah Eve, and I put out a Hanukkah a menorah and called my neighbors on the floor. I said to them, you know, it's Empire State Building, Mm -hmm. all kinds of offices, said we are having punch keys and we are (laughs) lighting the Hanukkah candles. And you know what? So many came and we all, strangers to one another, we sang the Hanukkah songs together. Strangers, we were united by the same songs, by the same prayers, secular, orthodox, whatever we were, men and women, obviously together, singing that Hanukkah, those Hanukkah songs together. Beautiful. Something I wish I had learned about Judaism growing up is? That it's not about the hierarchy of the Jewish organized religion. But it is about the faith itself, which gives every person its dignity. And that's where women can draw their strength from. You know, it's so um, interesting that you brought up that answer. uh, So apropos to the time of the year, we're in the month of Elul, which is a month of a relationship of really evaluating. um, Like you said, it's nothing to do with the hierarchy of, of something structure organized but really getting to the the epicenter and essence of our relationship with Hashem our relationship with our soul and our relationship with others so that we can stand um, on Rosh Hashanah on a very different place and with a great mindset to tackle the year ahead so I think it was just so appropriate that you mentioned that okay when I give tzedakah I like to give to anything that has to do with Israel nice and finally I'm Talia Karner and today I am most grateful for for talking to you (laughs) and to your listeners of course And I hope that they will uh, look into my website in order to find out the ways that they can help uh, fight sex trafficking in their own backyard. There is a whole page with links and explanation, an article about it and various links so that they can find out where are the organizations operating in their own community, in their own cities, when they can help. And of course, I hope that they read my novel, The Third Daughter, and understand from the inside the humanity of a girl like that who had been trapped, had been kidnapped, and been forced into prostitution, and how she was able to keep her dignity and her personality inside all of that situation so that the third daughter is is actually a book that has a happy ending because of what she's able to to preserve through it all so if you'd like to put my website of on. course we will we will do it's all that www.taliacarner.com t-a-l-i-a C-A-R-N as in Nancy, E-R dot com. Talia Karner, thank you so much for everything you're doing. Kola kavod to everything and continued success and a lot of blessings for the new year. Really tremendous success. I can't wait to get my hands on the new book and everybody go follow Talia. Get the book and go check out Talia's website at taliacarner.com. Thank you, Talia, for everything you're doing. Continued success. Thank you very much. 
thanks to Talia Karner for stopping by. Again, her latest novel is The Third Daughter, available anywhere books are being sold. You can find Talia on her website, taliacarner.com, or on social media at Talia Karner. All of this and more back at jewishlatinprincess.com, where you can leave me a message with your questions for a future Ask Yael episode, catch up on some blog posts, and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, you can also send me an email to suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, yael at jewishlatinprincess.com. You can do that. You can send me questions, anything and everything. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes because those reviews do go a really, really long way on the iTunes platform. And it's another great thing that you can do is share the show with a Jewish woman in your life. Next Monday, I won't be airing an episode for its Rosh Hashanah. So I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a ketiva v'chatima tova and a year full of revealed blessings for you and your loved ones. Very exciting time. One of my favorites, the new year. I'll catch you back here on 5780 Shana Tova. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.